0: Anyway, the pivot point was the one that I think is so important for so many people and that was, I asked for help. That changed everything.
1: Hi, this is singer-songwriter Elizabeth Edwards. Welcome to Giving Voice to Recovery, a place we share ideas and experience for the purpose of inspiring you on your recovery journey. Maya Gardner, thank you so much for joining me. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you through working um, on the board of Faces and Voices of Recovery. We both um, have gotten to know each other a little bit that way. And I just thank you so much for joining me and sharing a little bit of your story around your recovery and your creative life. And so, yeah, I always like to start out with I I am fascinated with those moments of clarity, those Mm. pivot points that take us from the darkness of active addiction that get our attention enough to make that pivot point, that 180 degree turn in recovery. So I always like to start with that. Can you share a little bit about your story about what brought you to recovery?
0: Yeah, of course. It's great to be with you, Elizabeth. For a a little bit via Zoom. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person again sometime soon as well. Uh, probably at the Faces and Voices Summit uh, this summer um, and at ongoing Faces and Voices of Recovery events. I gotta tell you, because you probably don't know this or remember it, but probably never even knew, but I first became aware of you long before you knew about me because I was at the Fed Up rally in Washington, DC and I was one of the speakers uh, one uh, October
1: okay.
0: in AC and I, I shared the story of losing my mother to an overdose. Um, and maybe we can talk about that later, mm-hmm. but uh, you were performing, uh, you sang and, and played. And of course it, I was drawn to that because I've uh, had a life in music uh, as well. And and so here's another person in recovery using music to to advocate in this case for Um, families and for uh, opioid legislation. So I appreciate all that you do. And it's been fun uh, since that day, uh, meet you in person and get to know you personally. Thank you. Um, So my pivot point, uh, it was in 2006, it was September. And um, it's really hard in retrospect to even know why it was a pivot point. But I woke up in a hotel and uh, it was on Monday morning and I was it was about 10 o'clock in the morning and I was maybe a little earlier than that, I was late for work
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I wasn't sure how I'd spent the entire evening and I was really, really angry at myself. So I, I woke up angry, frustrated cr- and crying and um, for whatever reason, that was the day that i decided in that moment to call a friend who was a social worker and and ask for help
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know i had tried to 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 quit drinking and you know i i used some drugs and and drank a lot and was pretty desperate at that point my my girlfriend at the time who i'm lucky enough is my wife today mm-hmm. uh she kicked me out of the house so i was sort of living out of my car and in hotels and uh Almost like I think maybe in my the back of my mind, seeing my alcoholism to its inevitable end, maybe, I'm not sure. But that morning, I, was just, I just remember being angry and frustrated. That's the emotion. So much so that I was crying. Like, how did this happen? Why am I late for work? Um, I did not intend the night before. I'd had a rehearsal with a group that I was performing with. I stopped at the bar after the rehearsal, on my way back to my hotel and apparently was there, you know, the whole night <laughs> and longer perhaps.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, so that's the main emotion I remember is anger and frustration. at Like, why did I allow this to happen again? Of course, I was placing it all on myself. Like, it was me. It was my decision, my uh, mm-hmm. my behavior that led to this. But Anyway, the pivot point was the one that I think is so important for so many people. And that was, I asked for help. That changed everything. Uh, You know, hard to see it in the moment, but it changed everything from that point forward. And so not only did I call my friend who was a social worker, who was able to get me in treatment later that day um, Mm. at a place, uh, actually in a town called Woodstock, Minnesota, which was kind of ironic as a a musician to end up at Woodstock. It, was, it wasn't the Woodstock I had planned, uh, uh, I yeah. dreamed of, I should say. But um, I also, after I called him, I called my girlfriend. I told her I was, before I even knew, knew for sure, I was going, I said, I'm, I'm going to get help. That was a short conversation, but I let her know. I called the group that I'd been performing with because we had a big theater show, uh, like in a week. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm, I'm going to, I got to go get help. I called my boss and again, it's hard to even imagine how I had the gumption to do all this, but I was so sort of broken at that moment Mm -hmm. that it almost was easy. Like I, there was a relief and like, I'm going to tell everybody and I'm going to actually go do something about it. And so I called my boss, my girlfriend, the group, I was playing music with my friend and I checked out of the hotel when, and he came and picked me up and he drove me to this place. And I was still, you know, I didn't feel great. I was still very much yeah. hungover. And uh, I'll never forget what my friend told me on the way to treatment. I've said this to in other settings as well. He said, you know, your life's never gonna be the same again, don't you? And um, it just seems so like over the top and dramatic at the time. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm sure it's never gonna be the same again. But it stuck with me and probably because he ended up being right, my life never was the same
1: again. Yeah.
0: I got, um, I, I went to treatment. I had lots of stuff going for me in terms of recovery capital, a lot of privilege. I had insurance, I had a job. I, in fact, I didn't pay for a penny of my um, treatment. And I actually got paid a portion of my salary while I was in treatment, which is- Oh, wow. Definitely not the norm. And I had supportive friends and family and a supportive boss. I just, I had a lot to make that a good experience. And
1: And um, it sounds like too, just the awareness of knowing that it existed that came from somewhere. A lot of people don't. One of the reasons I do this podcast is to really help people understand that there is a way out. That's why I like to start these conversations with people's way out. Um, you were blessed with some kind of an awareness that that recovery treatment was somewhere around you. I mean, you knew a friend who knew something. So many people don't. So you were blessed that way, but you, but you did something so important and that was, you surrendered to it, which is awesome.
0: You know how I knew about it is because my band, we had gigs and there was this sign on the highway South of Marshall, Minnesota, that we drove by a million times. And it was like Five miles this way to New Life Treatment Center. There you and go. Would joke about they would joke about
1: dropping me <laughs> off.
0: <here. laughs> That's funny. For a long time. So when I finally knew, and I didn't really know exactly. I just knew my friend was sort of in that world as a social worker. Mm. And I, I just called and said, hey, can you get me some help? I didn't necessarily know that would be treatment. or Because I, I agree with you. I didn't, I didn't know a lot of people that were in recovery that I was aware of anyway. Yeah, um, you of course once you get in recovery yourself, you learn about all the people in your life that, yeah, are already in recovery that you just didn't know about, um, which was also a wonderful experience and eye-opening in terms of advocacy that I would be, become involved with later. But yeah, that was a that was a big day in my life, and I'm I'm just uh, I'll never stop being grateful for it.
1: Yeah. It's, it brings up so much gratitude. I I think I love this topic so much. I mean, this is like, because of the gratitude, I always say that my worst day turned out to be my best day and I just didn't know it at the time, but yeah, it sounds like, and you, it, another thing that you said, you said so much in that, and I just want to kind of jump in a little bit. The, the synchronicity, once you made that, that very, you know, surrendering decision, like I can't, continue what I'm doing I need to do something different I don't really know what that looks like but I'm willing to surrender out of desperation really I mean I don't think that was probably if you're in a hotel because the girlfriend doesn't want you around anymore there's probably a whole backstory which I know we we share at different levels and different groups about all of that but yeah, yeah I love the yeah. I love the pivot points I think they're so important and it's the start it's not the you know a lot of people who go to get help for You know, active addiction, it's not a one and done. You know, it's a chronic behavioral health disorder, meaning it's ongoing and we have to maintain our recovery over the rest of our life if we want to keep it. And I just want to say that I know you know that, um, but I just want to say that for anyone who's not super familiar with the recovery process. And so some people I think go to treatment thinking, okay, got that one handled them out of here and now I'm good it's not no it is life-changing and um, I know you know that because not only are you an artist in your own right and do a lot of advocacy around the arts and also advocacy around policy you work for the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation how did that all come about for you
0: oh boy it's um it's a long story but maybe I'll just share another pivot point So that, that the pivot point I shared before was really personally a professional pivot point for me was about, I don't know, five years into recovery. I, like a lot of folks in recovery was feeling so much better and more optimistic and ambitious in my life, um, that I, I left the career I was in and I went to law school
1: Mm -hmm. and,
0: um, while I was in law school, my first semester, I got a call from another friend who's a filmmaker. And I, I'll never forget this either because I, I was in the car, I was driving on the freeway, and I, and I hadn't heard from him in a while. And he called and he said he was working on a new documentary about the history of addiction treatment. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't really even know why he had an interest in that, but he's a good filmmaker. He's a guitar player and an artist through and through himself. And turned out he had. Uh, you know, I had his own recovery experience, which I learned and which had spurred his interest. But he said, I just got back from Chicago where I interviewed this guy named William White. Have you ever heard of it? I heard of him. And at the time I hadn't, I'd never heard of him. Um, of course, now I came to know that he's like the most preeminent historian and advocate um, sort of in the recovery world. Uh, he's a hero of mine. Um, At the time I had no idea who he was, but I was interested. I said, I would love to help you with that, can I? And so I started working with him on this documentary film project about the history of addiction treatment. And we went, we interviewed all sorts of folks. um, A lot of them who have passed away since, but like preeminent people, including William White, he's of course alive still. Um, But in the course of that, I went to Hazelden to interview uh, a historian by the name of Damien McElrath, who was a incredible, uh, spiritual leader, a clinician and a a longtime administrator at Hazelden, but also most important to me, he wrote a bunch of books about Mm. the history. He wrote a couple of biographies and a couple of books about the history of Hazelden. And, um, And Hazelden, you know, just had had a sort of a, its place, a prominent place in the sort of evolution of treatment and recovery in the United States. And that's why I went up there to interview him. But when I was there, I learned that they had a graduate school, an accredited graduate school where you can get a master's degree in addiction studies. And I had gotten so deep into William White that I sort of wanted to be William White. And (laughs) a lot of my background was similar to his. I'd been a trainer and a consultant and a writer. and um, But he had a master's degree in addiction studies. I didn't. And I just learned about the graduate school and to um, keep the story from getting too long, I ended up leaving law school and going to the Hazel and Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. Where I earned my master's degree in addiction studies just like William White's got yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, and then I, I I had a opportunity to get a job when I um, finished and now I find myself in this just uh, serendipitous sort of role at Hazel and Betty Ford where i'm I work in advocacy and media relations and communications kind of a one in a million type job that you know is only because I took several next right steps, uh, yeah. leaps of faith, without really knowing where I was going. It just landed me. But that's how I got to Hazel the Betty Ford. It's how I got interested in advocacy was through William White. Like, we, he wrote the history of addiction treatment, a book called Slaying the Dragon. That was the mm-hmm. source material for the film project that we were working on. But he also wrote all sorts of stuff about advocacy as a lot of us mm-hmm. know now. So it was a bit of a rabbit hole for me, but I just, I wasn't aware at the time, even though I was in recovery myself for five years at the time, I, I wasn't really cognizant of a, a culture around recovery
1: yeah. or
0: en- enough to even think that there's a history that people have played different roles and. Um,
1: yeah, it, it's such a rich history too. And, and the Betty Ford foundation has and Hazleton before they came together both played major roles in the the industry around supporting people with these problems which was really interesting because the original 12 step group never really wanted to take that on because they knew that that would interfere with the there's, so there's that history of how they made that conscious decision to not take on the medical side of it and yet there was still a real need for the science and the and the education around what was actually really happening with people with these disorders so it's it's really kind of it's it's a part of a bigger history that I think is so important and to, to get that story out there. And um, yeah, I have a, a funny, I, I want to jump in real quick on my first, my first impression of the Betty Ford Foundation, because it was before it was the Hazleton. I was probably within my first year, and I'm a 12 step person. So I was in a 12 step meeting. And I was in, I was 25 and I was around people who were, you know, I thought about 150, but they were probably 40. You know what I mean? When you're 25, you think anyone over 30 just looks so ancient to you. So I'm in these rooms and I'm hearing these people and they're talking and they have this, there was like a, there was like a threatened, some people had a very threatened attitude about, oh, what's this? treatment. I didn't need to go to treatment. I just, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And I I look back at that now and it was just fear, but it was interesting because I'd never heard of a treatment center ever where I came from. I never knew anyone who went to it. I didn't even know that the 12-step groups existed until I met somebody going to to 12-step meetings. And so I'm in these rooms trying to figure myself out and uh, figure I I think I came in with four feelings really really good really really bad good and bad you know I had four feelings I had the smiley chart but here was this thing called the treatment center and it was somehow the you know the president of the United States uh, former president of the United States wife was putting treatment centers together that was my first concept of it and it was just like it, it blew my mind I mean and to see what that organization was one of the first ones. Duffy's was another one here locally I found out later. But there were just a few early pioneers, and I believe she was truly a pioneer on the on the um really the medic the the education piece, such a big contribution and Hazelton also had such a library and the whole school thing so there was such a great confluence of things that happened during during the years that that I've been in recovery so so that's my Betty Ford story it was like the first conscious awareness I ever had of anything called a treatment center before that you just heard about people going getting locked up in you know places with funny people you know it was like oh sad you know and i was like oh yeah i'm not one of them you know enough reasons to not want to do that but over time that stigma around that those misconceptions over time in the rooms and outside of the rooms have really changed i believe because of the advocacy of, of betty ford so i have a huge fond spot in my heart for for that for that um for that woman she's a wonderful woman so
0: well thank you for for saying that of course i feel the same she uh you know hazelin was found at 30- 30 three years before the Betty Ford center
1: mm-hmm.
0: and she came to Hazelden twice uh, before to sort of like she to help get the ideas for the Betty Ford center. It was very much based on it. And Hazelden had a, a role in identifying their first uh, clinical leader there. So we were kind of partners from the get go, but then we became competitors yeah. and then came back together many years later. But, you know, even though Hazelden was around a, a and probably was more influential because it influenced the Betty Ford Center. On the treatment side, her advocacy role was really unprecedented and still is to this day, somebody that prominent. And what's the marvel I think of is when she went to treatment at the Naval Hospital in Long Beach, California, that's where she went, she actually did a press conference the first day she was at treatment. Yeah, um, And it was in the New York Times, it just a little blurb. And then, uh, and she was going through her own thing. And she said she had problems with pain medication and she wasn't really uh, coming to grips with her alcohol use yet. Halfway through treatment, she did another press conference and put out another statement that said she was dealing with pain medication and alcohol. But the... The fact that she was so public about it so immediately is just, it's hard to understand what possessed her to do that. And I guess she had a record of it. She was all, I think her biggest legacy is that she had the courage to be exactly who she was.
1: Absolutely. And and the other thing about that was she, as I recall, and the thing, and I don't know that I was aware at that time because I was early in recovery. I'm just coming up on 38. Years here in a minute. Um, So, this was back a while, and I wasn't real clear minded for the first couple of years. I really wasn't. I was still, I still really struggled for a couple of years with my thinking processes. But as I remember, at some point, I became really aware that she was probably the first person who spoke publicly about recovery from addiction, chemical addiction in a way that didn't sound like, it, it sounded like this is a behavioral health disorder. <laughs> I mean, she was, it was no shame. There was there was no shame in her game at all. And if you think about what stigma is, stigma is that, that shame. I believe it's societal shame. That's what I believe that stigma is. She didn't have that. She was like, there's a lot of people just like me. And if I come out and say, I'm getting help for this problem I have. And she did that so fearlessly and looking, I think I got more information as I matured and got my brain back. (laughs) And I looked back at that. I looked at, it's like that inspired me before I ever knew I would be a public person talking about this stuff, but it inspired me as an advocate. And I, it just, it still to this day blows my mind because there's still a lot of stigma and shame today, and it wasn't any better then; it was worse because people had just, you know, that was hush hush. And, you know, but so she was incredibly brave. And, and what was so funny about it was she didn't act like it was brave. She, it was, it was in her nature to share her, her solution from day one.
0: Well, to share her authentic self. Um, yeah. She, she did the same with breast cancer. Uh, you yeah. know, she's, as much of a pioneer in breast cancer advocacy as she is uh, addiction recovery advocacy. But you know, when she disagreed with her husband in the White House, she she let that be known. She was just always herself. And yeah. what I love about that, this courage to be her authentic self, even when she's not her best, which yeah. is such a contrast to the social media environment we live in today, where we always yeah. put
1: our our, our
0: our best version of ourselves.
1: Yeah. Um, and also as a political wife, that still probably wouldn't have gone over with a lot of people. So you got to give a lot to Jerry Ford for, for having a wife that he admired so much and loved so much that he was like, yeah, let her go I do love, her. Right.
0: I love that. That That's a great point. But and what I love about her, her courage to be your authentic authentic self is we all have that power within us. Like all of us, can summons the power to be who we are but it's not easy um Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's you know doing this podcast or whether it's at work or whether it's sitting in a a 12-step meeting or whether it's you know talking with relatives who are visiting like to be your true authentic self i'm not sure that i am always my true authentic self it's it's something to strive for. It's like, it's almost like not, not natural, but for her, for some reason, it was just
1: yeah. natural.
0: Or Maybe she just had a an inability to not be herself, but uh, you know, we all have benefited from whatever gave her that courage. And and I'd like to know that I have that within myself. Yeah.
1: Too. I, it's interesting. You bring that point up. That's a great, a great point. I, I, I love Brene Brown. I know you guys published her book, which is an, a First lot book. of books her first book. And, um, she talks about vulnerability and that open, that living life open-hearted. And, you know, I would say in a lot of ways, that's what a lot of people would love to be able to do, but among other things, having an active addiction going on in our lives keeps us from connecting. It, it It's an isolating kind of illness and the, the shame makes it worse the, I would have loved to have known what she was like, and maybe you can give me some insight on this and I, not to go too far in this direction. Cause there's a lot of things I want to ask you about your art and your, and your creative projects. But I wonder if there's information about her in her recovered life. She, if she started out on that level, which blew me away and I was barely blown away by anything at that point, I was still, de- I was still thawing out. Right. But for her to show up authentic from day one, and then to be able to be a recovered person, go through some other tough things and still really, you know, did she get more authentic? Did she, I mean, she obviously jumped in with both feet on, on being very open about breast cancer, which wasn't, you know, obviously still with us today as well.
0: Yeah. I don't have any terrific, I, I shouldn't, you know, I didn't unfortunately get to meet her. She passed away in 2011, which was, you know, I, I think I came to Hazelton's graduate school that later that year, so I just missed even sort of that connection, but um, I'm a student of her life for sure, um, and, uh, you know, I've always heard similar things from, you yeah, know, I've never heard contradicting things from anybody. It's always, she was, It's not like she was a perfect person. I think she had her, you know, her, um, she was sharp. She was funny. um, She was warm. She could also be biting, I think, with Mm -hmm. people if she, you know, if the situation (laughs) called for it. Mm -hmm. Um, She was just like the rest of us in recovery. We're not perfect. We are, we, we are all the things
1: we're just human, right? We're human. And we just happen to have this thing. What's so interesting though. I think there was, must've been just, I am going to make a mind read, but there must've just been a tremendous passion for recovery for her, for her to invest in a foundation. I mean, that's a not a small investment of time and creativity and mental energy. So yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. I have just a great um, deal of regard for, for the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation and, and all the things you guys do now. I do want to pivot a little bit. I, I you know how much I, I love you guys. So um, I do want to pivot a little bit and talk about another project that you're really involved in that, and that's dissonance. Tell me about dissonance, what brought what it is, what brought you to it and what you guys tell me all about it.
0: Well dissonance is a it's a, a relatively small nonprofit in the Twin Cities here of Minnesota. Um, that does work at the intersection of recovery, mental health, and creativity in the arts. So, you know, we promote mental health and well-being in and through the arts. And the idea is uh, there's a lot of mythology in the arts world. I, I was part of it as a musician for a lot of my life, sort of drawn to the sex drugs and rock and roll and the the idea that you, you have to be sort of messed up to, to really make good art um, or to summons the, the creativity that you need. And uh, you know, so part of the dissonance mission is to dismantle that and, and help people who do have creative lives to know that it's, you don't have to be messed up, that it's okay to take care of yourself and to be healthy and that you won't lose your creativity Um, At the same time, the second part of our mission is to work within that creative community to uh, carry that same message, but to the general public, because there's something special about uh, artists that, you know, people universally consume music and other art. So if you've got a musician such as yourself, who can, you know, not only share about their recovery, but share great music mm-hmm. and bring people into a room to hear music or to see other kinds of arts or to see a theater performance. Um, it's just a natural way to get eyeballs <laughs> and minds tuned toward the issue that we want to talk about, which is recovery. So that's why we say we, we do it in and through the arts, that's in the way. creative community, and then you know with the creative communities for the general public. and. I love it. You know, it's a, it's a. The origin of that organization is it started at a uh, music school here in the Twin Cities called McNally Smith, which was like a miniature Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer, um, sadly, it's no longer in business. But <clears throat> for many years, and some of my good friends were went to school there. It trained, um, is like a college for musicians and to. You know, you'd really dive into music theory and all sorts of other stuff. You'd learn the music business. And um, some faculty there, including the founder of, co-founder of Dissonance, Sarah uh, Souter-Johnson, who's a good friend of mine, started, uh, they just had a spark of a good idea. And that was to bring together musicians to talk about what it's like when you start to actually work as a musician in terms of your mental health and your well-being. Yeah. So they brought together four or five artists that the students would look up to. They're prominent in the Twin Cities area, mm-hmm. and they had a discussion where they sort of had each of them share, but also perform songs, and it became a, a sort of a concert and a conversation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, just like with any good idea or invention, you sort of notice it as soon as you get feedback or as soon as you see it, like, wow, that was powerful because it was entertaining, but it was also just deeply interesting and revealing. Mm
1: -hmm. And it
0: made me appreciate their art more. It made me um, listen to the message that I might not have listened to otherwise because it was coming from, uh, you know, uh, artists that I respect and admire and am fans of. Mm -hmm and it was just kind of magical so that this is again before my involvement they just kept doing that doing events like that and eventually once the the um, the co-founders left the school the school eventually again folded uh, but they incorporate decided to take the idea and create a nonprofit, a 501c3 and that's and i got involved at that time i was invited in just mutual friends that knew I had an interest in that sort of thing. I would played a, a, a prominent role in um, organizing a music festival that Hazel and Betty Ford-
1: Oh, that's uh, right, yeah.
0: For a number, number of years called Hazel Fest. Right. And, um, and of course I was like, you, you know, I couldn't believe an organization like that it really existed or could exist, you know, that, that worked in and through the music and arts community and talked about recovery. In mental health, it was like the perfect fit for me, yeah. and so I uh, volunteered to be on the board. I'm still on. I'm a founding board member. I'm still on the board six years later. I I probably should roll off, but I just can't quit it. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I think because they're good friends, and I just love the opportunity to yeah. be in, sort of in the. This- I don't even know how to describe it, but being around creative people to me is really nourishing.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think there, uh, there's so much that you said there that I want to kind of circle back a little bit. Um, I too have had those conversations with people in the music industry that would say, oh, well, you know, everybody knows that I'm a sober person. I sing about it. Right. So the, um, in my own way, I'm not hitting anybody over the head with the 12 steps, but I'm speaking the language that we all understand. And most of us understand in here, but that's the language in, in the songwriting. But it's funny because a lot of people was like, well, I need my edge or, you know, they're not telling me this, but you can, you can pick this up. But a lot of people have asked me, well, weren't you afraid when you quit that you would Lose your ability. I hadn't. I had lost my ability to be connected to my art for a number, quite a while before I actually had a bottom and got sober. And then after sobriety, I didn't want to go back to music because music actually scared me because I thought I had to be high to be part of it. That's where it took. That was part of my story. But at seven years sober, I the songs started coming through me and even then I didn't want to perform them. I just wanted to write them and have, you know, send them off to Nashville and ask Shania Twain, Twain to sing them or something. You know, I was like, I was like, Oh, I can't handle that. But what happened was I ended up, um, uh, being asked to uh, open a show for a comedian, uh, Mark Lundholm. A lot of people know who, and Mark L. And I started doing some shows with him and people asked me for my CDs. And all I had was a bunch of demos from songs I'd been sending off to publishers in Nashville trying to get you know, some big artists to do it. And that's how I got back into it and all the music, not all the music, but a lot of the music was coming from a sober life at that point. So you write what you know. So it evolved really naturally for me, but I can tell you my best work has happened in my later life, not in my earlier life. Uh, before, my before songs, I don't—I think I have two songs from there that I would even ever want to play for you. So, I mean, it was like the best stuff actually came in in recovery, not in, in drinking. But I think there is a lot of myths I like your word myth around, um, a culture of, um, I call it glorified suicide, you know, it's like cool to be, and it's not cool. It's, it's, if you actually can't stop something that's self-destructive as this, it's, it's actually hell on earth. And Anyone who's really been there knows that. So art isn't keeping you there. That's just that's just an excuse. I actually do believe there is correlation between creativity and um, maybe a vulnerability to to becoming addicted. Um, And that is, uh, there's kind of a spiritual bypassing that's going on, I think, when we're reaching for substance outside of ourselves to fill that God-sized hole inside of ourselves, which is the way, one of the ways that I've heard addiction described and one that I can attest to. And I think substance that can destroy us can fill that for a moment long enough to feel connected and fill all those good feelings that keep us going in that direction. But then they we crash and burn with it. But art can also give you that spiritual high. So I think we are at the at the base level, people who really need that connection, whatever that might be, it might not be in the traditional, some kind of traditional spirit, you know, religious sense, it isn't for me, it's more of a spiritual sense. But that is a very important part of my life today. And art is one way that I am very much connected to that. So I think there is a vulnerability to people who have a real a real need to connect in that way. Not that all people don't probably have a need to do. I just know that there's a lot of sensitivity in creative people there and the lack of that connection can feel, I think, pretty painful for, for some of us. So I think that's where there might be kind of more of us hanging around in that area. That's my philosophy. That's my theory on that. What do you think about that, Jeremiah?
0: Well, I think that there's something to it, but at the same time, I think that uh, peop- that artists also have a propensity for recovery. This is what I love as a recovering person to be around art and artists is that I think, and everybody might define art differently, but for me, the art that I love and the, the part of creativity that I like is, is really that it's, it's, a, it's seeking in nature, You're seeking to mm-hmm. understand you know, why we're here, it's big questions. That's what real art is. It's about the big questions of being human and why we're here and to to be able to then share insights or even creative ways to ask those big questions. Um, And that's a lot of what recovery is. I think too, for for me, it's this this, um, endless thirst to learn more. It's like an adventure. That's, you know, I I always thought and worried that sobriety would be boring.
1: Yeah, I did too.
0: (laughs) It's just the opposite. opposite. I think of how mundane things were when I was drinking a lot. It's like the same stuff over and over. Stuck
1: in the same loop.
0: Yep. Yep. And, 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 you know, in recovery, able to just make different decisions and explore more and do more and ask more questions and, and 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 move towards some sort of uh, insightful life, um, usually informed by for me with by connections. Like I love the conversation we're having,
1: mm-hmm.
0: primarily because I f- I'm feeling an intimate connection that just is not normal in day-to-day human life. Um, I, I can even go even at Hazel and Betty Forward, like any other job. You, can, it's a rat race. I got my to-do list. I got a get everything done. And you're moving from meeting to meeting and, but art and recovery are both a little bit about stopping. Yeah. Seeing what's around you, smelling the Making
1: that 18 inch drop down into the heart (laughs) and experiencing life. You know, I have a philosophy about, I got a lot of philosophies, but you know, really we are, we, we do think we do feel and we do need and when we're lined up like that and we can experience ourselves that way i think that we tend to compartmentalize when we're trying to get things done and it's a good thing we can do that because that's how we can survive <laughs> but art is the opposite direction it's we're going inside of ourselves to open that up and express that and that's a different that is a different activity and i believe that activity connects us to what i call a higher power it's the source energy. You can hear, you know, people in religious backgrounds would call it all kinds of different, whatever their name for God is basically. And not, I always say, don't let the words offend you. Don't let the words get in the way. The words are here for us to, you know, words are my paint, right? Music's my canvas, words are my paint. So I love words, but I also understand that words can get in the way. But what I'm talking about is that spiritual art is a spiritual experience for me. When I write a song. When I wrote clean, I was, it was literally my 25th anniversary in recovery. It was the day of my 25th anniversary. I was sitting at my piano and I don't write from my piano very often. I don't play very well. I just tinker with it mainly, but I mainly write from the guitar, but I sat down and I, that song just came through me almost in its entirety as it is right now. So that's the rush that I live for which is authentic and i do believe that at some point drugs kind of felt like that rush drugs and alcohol i felt like i wasn't enough life wasn't enough this event wasn't enough so i needed something to enhance that experience but it it only did it for a second and then it would drop me so there's something similar in that actual authentic spiritual experience of creating something and allowing spirit to use you in that way mm-hmm. versus a fake, basically a fake spiritual experience. That's what I'm talking about. There's a propensity to vulnerability because you need it because you're by nature a creative, real highly creative person. I think it does kind of set creative people up to be a little bit more vulnerable. That's just my experience around a lot of people in the arts. But I also think what you said is absolutely true, and and on the opposite side of that is because you have that need, your recovery can be so much more powerful because of that same, the thing that's a liability here becomes an asset here. That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I've noticed uh, a few times when I'm on an airplane, this is going to sound weird, but when I'm on an airplane and I'm... uh, have headphones and I'm listening to music that I really love and the kind of music I love is, is you are, is usually stuff that just allows me to really contemplate things. And there's something about for me that when I'm on an airplane and I'm listening to music that I, I feel so inspired and I've been thinking about why is that? Why, why is this such a rush for me on an airplane listening, specifically listening to music on an airplane or walking through, you know, to get off the plane and, sort of walking through the concourse. Um, and I think it's because when you're in a plane, you're, 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 you have perspective that all the stuff below, the stuff that sort of we deal with on a day-to-day basis, and, you know, in recovery world, that might be, you might talk about resentments and procrastination and all these things that get in the way. But when you're in an airplane, you, you have the perspective to sort of see that all for what it is. And then really tune into what is most important. Mm-hmm. Airplane's like a physical way to do that, but I think the secret of life for me is to is to try to always put myself back in that perspective, and not get caught up in the the day to day stuff that can really uh, make living life hard. And to that, and so I think music does that for me. It. it whether it's on a plane, that's like an, a heightened version of it. But even music <laughs> on the ground takes me to that place where I just naturally think in a, a better perspective. And I think recovery for me is also about, you know, when you, if you go to a support meeting or when we're having this conversation right now, again, I'm able to tune out um, a lot of the stuff um, that might, you know, lead me down the wrong paths.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I think having that perspective of what's really important Why am I here? What do I care about? What do I want to stand for? What do I want, you know? um, I just love that that's the kind of life I get to lead now. And I think music and and being artistic is a little bit like that too. You can get past the mythology and, and really get to the pure art of how do I not only, Um, see the world with perspective, but then translate it for others to maybe experience it in the same way.
1: Absolutely. I think art is such a, all of the art is, and a bigger way of saying that would be, it's not, the outcome of it is an amazing thing to be able to create, creating a recording and see that recording go out into the world and have the feedback that people say oh my god that i listen to this song when i'm walking and meditating or or i listen to this song all the way on this trip i listen i just hit the replay button i mean when people tell you what it but it means something to them it's the soundtrack of their life but when it came through me that's part of the soundtrack of my life i get to be that vessel for that message that's not even it's the gift i bring to the party it's not it's not It's actually, in some ways, I feel just like the conduit of work, but to be able to show up for that is so powerful and to be able to know that you're on purpose and that, and I really love to talk to people in early recovery about that, especially creative people who, who think that it's never, you know, they're never going to feel better then it's never going to get better, or they're trying their best and they have to try, try, try. It will happen. It will happen if that's who you are. You will all the other stuff will fall away, and the and the art will be there. You don't have to worry about it. It will be there, and it will be in new ways that you never imagined, and it will come about in ways that you you couldn't have thought of yourself. And you're a creative person. It will happen. So I think just relaxing into it, and then it, too, it gives you such a great opportunity to work on all your own fears and the things that hold us back all the angst oh my god the the pile of angst I had to move through to trust myself enough to start getting out on stage again and seeing people and taking constructive criticism and sometimes just mean vindictive criticism and understanding the difference and that that wasn't about me and that I could learn the difference and know how to take direction from people who wanted to help me get better and also how to recognize that vindictive criticism is really about them and God bless them. And I don't have to take that on learning those internal skills to stay safe in my own frame and not have to drink over any of that, not have to get unstable around any of it. There's such a power And when you put recovery and art together. So I just love this conversation, Jeremiah. I know we'll do another one soon. I know you and I are working on some things that hopefully we'll be able to talk about down the road, but where can people get in touch with you through dissonance? I'm going to put it in the show notes, but how can people get in touch with you guys?
0: Yeah, our website is dissonance, D-I-S-S-O-N-A-N-C-E.org. And I want to highlight one that we, we started recently, and we have some generous donors that have helped make this possible, a YouTube series called Dissonance Sessions. And sessions is a little bit of a play on word because it's, it's a recording session, but it's also like a therapy session. We've had uh, three really amazing episodes so far. And what it is, sort of in the spirit of what I described about dissonance before, it's a concert and a conversation, but it's with our 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 board chair and co-founder, Sarah, who's a brilliant therapist. And so it, not only do you get to hear music and hear s- stories behind the music, but you almost get to see a therapy session. I mean, it's not really a therapy session, but it, it has that feel. And uh, I think that's a fascinating sort of inside look for a lot of people. And
1: And that's uh, on YouTube. That's a YouTube series called...
0: dissonance sessions you can find it on our website as well but it's on youtube Um, and uh, uh, i just really encourage anybody who sort of likes podcasts and maybe tuning into this uh, you will definitely like sessions uh, and
1: i i actually publish it both through a podcast and through a video channel so i giving voice to recovery um so i will um, put in the show notes on uh, both of those session, both of those uh, links. And I just can't thank you enough. And um, yeah, thank you so much for, for spending some time with me and talking about one of my favorite subjects.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity and for all that you do in the world of arts
1: Thanks.